A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Alicia Kvada, an artist who makes spellbinding sculptural installations that play with perception and question the structures of our reality and society. Alicia grapples with fundamental philosophical concerns and draws on scientific and mathematic theory while engaging with time-honoured sculptural properties, space, material, weight and surface. Alicia was born in 1979 in Katowice in Poland. She moved to Germany as a child and went on to study in Berlin and London. She lives in the German capital today. From early in her career, Alicia has developed a distinctive language which is spare, almost austere in its presentation, but unravels over time, rewarding the viewer in its complexities and often with sheer visual pleasure. For the first of a series of sculptures she's made over the years called Parallel Welt or Parallel Universe, she took two table lamps and placed a two-sided mirror between them. As you walk around the sculpture, seeing it from different angles, the lamps appear to merge and separate. Alicia likened the effect to a picture, but when you change your physical viewpoint, the whole picture changes. This perceptual and dimensional shifting has grown ever more complex in Alicia's work since, and reached its most entrancing form in the work Weltenlinie. Dotted through a steel structure of equal rectangles, some just framing space, others containing double-sided mirrors, are stone and wood sculptures, sometimes with a twin in a different material. But again, as we move around the work, the objects appear to transform, changing colour, growing or even becoming their twin. As viewers, we too are reflected in the mirrors and we too dissolve into nothing. At the heart of Alicia's masterpiece is illusion. The physical materials are self-evident, even plain, yet their effects are ineffable. When I saw this piece at the Hayward Gallery in London in 2018, I remember audibly gasping. At the heart of Velton Linea and much of Alicia's other work are questions about the properties of matter. She's deconstructed familiar objects like a portable radio, literally transforming it into a series of elements and powders in jars in a vitrine. And she's done the same with herself. In a work she called self-portrait, she filled laboratory vials with the 24 chemicals that comprise the human body and arranged them in a perfect circle. This interest in fundamental material transformation extends to a group of sculptures she's made from trees, where she takes raw trunks and finds within them everyday objects, so that a perfectly rendered stool or a coat stand emerges from within the wood. As you'll hear, Alicia has a curious relationship with time and it manifests in various ways in her work. She's made what are effectively drawings with the tiny hands of wristwatches, arranged systematically so they cease to mark time but instead resemble other forms of data like sound waves. And in Against the Run, made for the Public Art Fund in a park in New York, she took a typical 19th century clock face and reversed the conventional mechanism so that it rotated backwards while the second hand pointed vertically 
at all times, appearing to stand still. So even though it told the correct time, our orthodox means of interpreting a clock made the piece virtually impossible to read. Alicia again interrogates the systems we invent to make sense of our lives and the world, and the instruments that record what we see as reality, and quietly destabilises them. Arguably her most famous work is another public art project, this time for the rooftop garden of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Called Parapivot, it was the culmination of a series of installations she's made with types of stone from different parts of the world, from Norway to Brazil, fashioned into spheres so that they resemble planets. Using a steel frame structure like the one in Velton Linear, she positioned the stone balls so that they floated, apparently weightless, within the structure, which inevitably resembled a miniature solar system. Parapivot was site-specific in that Alicia deliberately reflected on the millennia of human history and culture reflected in the Met's galleries below her installation and contrasted it with the billions of years of geographical time reflected in the universe and in those stone planets. She also pointedly referenced the capitalist vision that that is the New York skyline, alluding to its relative insignificance in the context of the cosmos. Alicia grapples with theories from quantum physics and mathematics as much as she does philosophy and art history. She said that her work starts when she stops understanding it and attempts to reach an explanation through sculpture. So I began our conversation by asking, what lies behind this delight in the unknown? I'm asked quite a lot about the source of my inspiration. I mean, inspiration is kind of a funny term for me to use sometimes because inspiration is something which is somehow coming to you, I would say, or most people understand it as something which is coming to you. But for me, it's not like much which is coming to me. It's more that I have to go for it and I have to learn about it and I have to work myself through things to kind of be able to start thinking in different directions somehow. And this is what is creating my work. So it could be called inspiration. And what I try to do since the very beginning, I, I can kind of, you know, remember what I do and uh, what I'm interested in is just to kind of observe the world, observe myself and question why that is, how I believe it is, or why people tell me to believe things, and how I see things, and how I'm teach to experience reality, and kind of to question that. And so, because I'm, of course, in this very bad situation to be a human being, <laughs> as all of us, I struggle, and I have no idea what that is all about, which is a sarcastic human problem, I guess. And then even worse that I'm not educated in all the things like science and, you know, other things. So I even can less understand that probably I would if I would be like educated in those things, which is also like a good thing somehow, because I don't question in one direction, actually. I always try to figure out things from different angles. So, you know, I'm trying to approach it like philosophically kind of poetic, science-wise. I, I jump in science and I don't understand quantum physics to the very end. Of course not, because nobody does. So I, you know, try somehow to imagine that and to, let's say, to express this desire to understand with the natural failure of not being able to do it and to kind of express that for myself and to also open my eye then to understand why things which I take for normal why are they 
what they are and who invented them and why they are existing. And so it's like why this not understanding is questioning and questioning is, yeah, what is probably driving me forward somehow. Absolutely. And it seems to me there's a sort of concern with almost trying to represent things that are impossible to represent. A kind of how can one deal with the unrepresentable or something which is elusive or you need to stretch to grasp somehow? Um, yes, but it's like, you know, it's not just about trying to visualize the impossible. So it's not just about abstraction. It's also very much about very, let's say, real things in our societal lives. So on one hand, if you start to question the simple things in life or society, like, you know, whatever, like the price of a cane of, of beer. You could question why somebody's telling you to pay $3.50 for that. It's not a given truth. So, so if you start to question that, you question probably what that is made of. What is the cane made of? Who's producing that? Where this like minerals are coming from? Where they came from the stars? So, I mean, you are ending up in the void anyway. So the void or like the perspective of, you know, the universe and things like that. You end up with that, but this is not actually where it starts. But it starts also with very simple things. Like, you know, I mean, why the clock is moving to the right and not to the left, for example. I mean, it's because it's a very political thing. It was created by like the Northern Hemisphere. That's why it is going to the right and not to the left. Uh, you know, why we have certain values, why we believe in certain truths. So it is, you know, it starts for me with a very, very kind of small sometimes, which is kind of surrounding myself. But the further you question it, of course, it gets very, very abstract. And then it gets impossible to find like even terms for it or even thoughts for it because it's blowing your mind and it's, it's kind of over, which is also like a nice point, I think, somehow, you know, it's like this error is kind of, um, <laughs> it's there for everybody the same. And, and you've made several works with clocks, of course, which is, you've talked about, about time there. Time is an ongoing concern of yours in all sorts of different ways, isn't it? Yes and no. Yes, it is. But I try not to take it more important than any other power. I mean, I appreciate gravity and all the other natural forces we are surrounded by kind of the same. I respect them the same. I give them the same value. And I have a struggle with time because, to be honest, I hate and love this kind of problem. I think it is completely overvalued. Because it's so romantic and it is romantic because it matters to us. Because we are time-limited creatures, that's why we are like very egoistic. Because it concerns us so much, we are, you know, writing about it, we are painting about it, we are doing music plays, we play theater, we do all the things about that since, you know, the very beginning. Because we are limited in time. So that's why it seems the biggest problem. But of course, it's just um, from our point of view. And that's why we have this very urgent need to make it livable for us and to structure it, to give it like names, to give it whatever, you know, sections, to be able to, to work with that, to live as a very big group of people, to match, to meet, to do all those things. But as I say, time is a very human invention because it's very needed for us, but it's not bigger or it's not like more important than any other, I would say. 
let's talk about the lack of romanticism, if you like, in the work, because it's a really intriguing idea that because, for instance, when you approach the idea of autobiography, you make self-portraits, for instance, or in the current 303 gallery show, there's a glass brick model of a room in your home. So you address your own autobiography, but it's incredibly objective the way that you address the self, right? Can you say something about wanting to involve yourself but somehow having an objective viewpoint on it. I don't know why it is the case, but I see myself very ironic somehow. I mean, with what I am, how I'm seen, what I think, it is like one of many options to, of a being. And I don't take myself very serious somehow, even if I do things which are very, very important to me, but... You know, looking on myself as one example of many, many possible human beings, there is not much more than to be objective somehow, because I think and I truly believe that, you know, most people take themselves much too important somehow in a strange way. And I also believe that this is like a potential danger because we are all quite the same in the end of the day. You know, we have the same kind of desires, more or less, the same physical needs. We are having the same, more or less, you know, little egos back and down. I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, I'm, of course, like privileged and I've never been in different circumstances. I mean, what means privileged? Like, I would call myself, I'm like a medium immigrant, whatever. But uh, what I'm trying to say is like, I truly believe that no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter which color you have, no matter in which like social surrounding you grew up, you know, the ground feelings, like kind of the basic things are very much the same. And that's why I see myself quite objective and I am not interested in my own biography very much because, okay, of course that is influencing uh, me and I can't escape that because... I can't because I'm a, yeah, I'm a person, but it does not matter to me so much. It does not matter where I'm from. It does not matter which nation I kind of am or which hair color or stuff like that. It doesn't matter to me. And it doesn't matter to me to all people I meet, actually. So it's more about, you know, the situation of a human being like in this world. And because I am the easiest example for me to take and I don't have to ask myself and I don't have to worry to hurt myself, I'm just taking myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. Thank you. I'd mentioned the sort of lack of romanticism there, but there is a certain magic about your work. And when I've been around people experiencing your work, it has a really tangible and dramatic effect on them you audibly hear people gasping and expressing surprise and delight and all those sort of things is there a sort of certain point that you want to get to with the work where it prompts those kind of responses and is it the response that you have to feel yourself before you know that it's going to work in a public forum I have to say that I can you know find myself trying to be super let's say, distant and very objective. But of course, I'm not in the end because it's kind of hard to, you know, escape. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I can't filter out all my, you know, thoughts and desires and things like that. And I think that why they appear, let's call it poetic sometimes, is because those questions I'm kind of running after are very human questions. And that's why I'm using symbols which are quite not to avoid and which are probably 
the same for a lot of people. And this is why I'm not really planning this, but somehow I guess if I think about it, I can and I have to expect the people to uh, read it the same way as I do. Because, you know, I just have the same source of education towards the things. And that's why I kind of try to answer or to fill this somehow helpless gap with no answers with these pictures. And that's probably why they are creating those reactions or feelings to other people. Let's move on to the questions we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I mean, like, probably something between Salvador Dali and Gordon Mata Clark. <laughs> That's an extraordinary opposition. In one hand, you can really see Mata Clark's work in your work today. But Dali is a sort of classic artist that many of us pick up early on. Yes, I mean, that was when I was like, you know, eight or something. And I think Gordon Mata Clark... Robert Smithson and all this guy like appeared later when I had the possibility to educate myself about you know things like that. <laughs> I mean, Matter Clark and, and Smithson are both artists who are dealing with the sculptural world, but in a broader sense and in involving the fabric of buildings, for instance, and and pushing sculpture and environment into new levels. It seems to me you're constantly wanting to push everything you do and transform everything you do into a different sphere or different field. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like when I actually met Gordon Mata Clark's work, I think I was so fascinated that you can do that, that you can also just decide to be an artist and do things like this, just because you do it. And that was probably, you know, like the point when I took this choice and I was like, sure. I mean, I always kind of knew, but that was the point when I was like, no, I'm not learning any proper education. <laughs> I'm not going to study medicine or whatever. Do this other things. So that's why, you know, the influence is very different. But then I think that was really like, you know, pushing me to look at those kind of art was giving me like the self-confidence as an artist to do what I guess I want to do and what I believe is important to say, no matter if that is difficult or not. So that's why I still somehow believe, <laughs> which is somehow funny, that I have also to push myself every time. And it almost has to hurt a little bit, at least, because otherwise you're getting somehow too comfortable or like too, too lazy or like too lazy in your head and too lazy in your efforts. And that's why I'm doing that, I guess. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Oh, I mean, to be honest, it's boring, but I still love Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, you know, like this kind of strange figures of the arts. With Leonardo, it's that polymathic quality, the idea of science and art being intertwined. And it struck me that that's, that's absolutely what you're doing, that bringing together of the different disciplines and indivisibly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's just curiosity towards everything. It's not one discipline. It's just also like questioning things, questioning life, questioning you know, reality, questioning, philosophy, questioning, everything. I'm interested in the way that you use historical sculpture in your work, because largely your work doesn't feature the human figure, even if it's very involving of the human body. But there are a couple of examples, for instance, the sculpture Bavaria, and also in the Mitte Orbiter 
sculpture where you used Ernst Fink's Drinking Girl. In Bavaria, you used Ludwig Schwanthaler's work. Tell me about why you used those particular figures in the work and what were you trying to do with them? I mean, to be honest, I'm really not interested in the human body at all. And not in mine, not in others, not, not in anyone. It does not matter to me at all. But what is interesting is how that was like, you know, described and how it is standing for social hierarchies and things like that. And how also like the female figure was used, how the male figure is used, how that is occupied with different cliches and things like that. And so, I mean, very easily, the Bavaria statue, for me, it was more about... Actually, I, I developed it for a competition for the city of München. And for me, it was about power. It, it was like about how power is presented to the people and what the symbols of power are. And I came to power from the thinking about society and who is saying and who is developing, um, you know, like reality and systems and all those things. So this was leading me, of course, to like um, the symbolic of power. And that was, in this case, leading me to the Bavaria figure, who is like a goddess and she's meant to take care of, you know, of the, of the state of Bavaria. But of course, she's having a sword, she's having, you know, a lion. I mean, and that was also meant to make people feel small. I mean, she's like the real sculpture is like over 36 meters or something. It's a huge thing. And that was done everywhere on this planet. It's, it's a very classy kind of way to make people feel small and to kind of show up this very, very clear, a little bit stupid symbols. That's why I decided to, you know, to just take those symbols away and just scale her down to my size and put her back in the city, on the ground in the city of München. So it's more about actually the system and the symbols than about the human figure. It's about how you read it, actually. And with the other piece, I think you mentioned the porcelain figurines, right? The little ones, the little... Yeah, exactly, yes. So, I mean, this, I took that because... Actually, it came through a very different wing again. Back then, I was dealing with gold and the value system. Actually, I was doing works about the metal market. So I was like, you know, kind of researching the prices of all metals for a gram of gold. And then I was researching, you know, I was very much in this gold thing. And if you are researching about gold, you are quickly, very fastly on porcelain. Because it was like, you know, the alchemists, they, I mean, it was invented by accident through this procedure of trying to find gold. And then I found this figurine by accident, who's also doing this very, very funny gesture. I mean, she's like almost like, you know, kissing the ground or she's on her knees, she's naked. And it was created by a German sculptor who was like quite successful in the 20s. And then the Nazis, they've been trying to put him in their field. He somehow denied and then he escaped from the whatever. And what they are doing and, and this gesture of this figurine was so strong for me, especially as this is a female sculpture, a female, you know, like also body. It's not you would never do that with a male body somehow. I, I kind of tried to pick that up and then to bring it together with this pieces of gold, which are called um, in German um, Bruchgold. It's a gold who is not belonging to anyone because this is like what is found on dead bodies. And if they don't have people, like family members, if there's nobody, the gold is going back to the country, to the state, and it's, it's melted down. And then it is, you know, a part of the gold reserves of the country. So it's like it came from bodies, but it's not belonging to anyone then this little female figurines are doing this gesture created by this guy who was important in the worst times in Europe, like 29, 28. 
and kind of eating this gold. But again, I was not so much interested in this figure or the body itself. It was more about the symbol of her like kneeing together with this gold, porcelain, gold, you know, kind of all together. So sometimes it, it, yeah, it appears, but not very, not very much. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Uh, uh, this is very changing each day almost, I would say. But probably I'm still a very big fan of Pierre Huc, I guess. It's very mm. kind of, I know, because kind of like the secret somehow behind it. So yeah, I never understand it really to the deepest, but I kind of like love these pictures and this poetry in it. Mm. Yeah, and then I can't really say, you know, it really changed. I mean, it depends where I see it and who I see and which context I am in, so... That, that's really changed in my life as well. I don't have heroes any longer somehow. <laughs> it's like more colleagues, you know, so it's kind of hard to say. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Arte Povera and particularly Giuseppe Pannoni because you do these wonderful things which involve raw trees and then you have, you know, functional furniture objects emerging from them. And I wondered if that was a direct response to Giuseppe Pannoni or kind of more like lateral thinking. No, it was not. But of course, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to avoid to bump in him. And first I seen it where I thought, oh shit, he did it already. <laughs> no, not really. But it's like, you know, this beautiful piece of Fenone when he's like making a portrait of a stone, which is the most beautiful piece ever, I guess. And I mean, they are very clear overlappings. But, you know, I think Benona has much more like a physical approach to those things. I actually don't really. For me, it's more like an idea about, and it's strange to say, but it's much more about language and about objects themselves than about a tree. And I think Pannone is much more really like, you know, trying to get out the tree of a tree. Uh, and it's much more about the physical object and also how it grows in nature. It's much more about nature. For me, it's not about nature at all. It's more about, I mean, who's saying, why do you call a chair a chair? Why do you call a table a table? Why don't you call a tree a table? I mean, it's kind of the same, but not because I'm kind of trying to figure out how we shaped the world to a point where we believe that those objects are there and we kind of forget that those objects are just there because we give them a name, because we are doing, you know, social functions with them. That's why we need names for them. But in the end, there's the same material as a tree, for example. But for me, it's more about that. But of course, I, I know Pannone's uh, work quite good, I would say, and I admire it um, to the deepest. I think on some point as an artist, it's a little bit difficult because if you try to be honest to yourself, I mean, you can't always avoid overlappings because that would be also like not real or not true. You know, if I would always avoid to use things or ideas, which probably possibly have been used in art history already, I could not talk. You know, I could not say anything. And I would have to lie because, I mean, we all have the same source of knowledge in the end. And it depends, of course, how you use it. If I know pieces, I would never, you know, I would always avoid to do the same, of course. But I think until I am honest to myself that it is from my own source of interest, I even think just like, you know, overlappings, let's call it, or like similarities are very beautiful somehow. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 135 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. 
Among the newest additions to the app are the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Museum of Art and Photography or MAP in Bengaluru, India, and the Met in New York, where Alicia Kvada made one of her most important sculptures, Parapivot, in 2019. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll see that the guide to the Met includes expert audio commentary on 100 highlights in the museum's collection. It also features a floor-by-floor journey through the vast building, with overviews of its most famous galleries, including Egyptian art, European paintings in the American wing, and audio features on the most celebrated works within them. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Whenever I'm in New York, I've just been in New York like each month. I'm, I'm in all the museums, so that's what I do. What I always do when I'm in Vienna is to see the Naturhistorisches Museum. It's like the Nature History Museum in Vienna, which I love. It's the oldest and, and probably most dusty one on this planet. I don't do many museums in Berlin, to be honest, because I'm, I'm always like, I don't know, like busy with my own things. So, so frequently it's hard to say, but I go whenever I can. With the Met Museum, one of the things that really intrigued me about the way that you responded to that commission was that you were on the roof and you said, below us, there's 5,000 years of human history. And somehow it made you think cosmologically about everything else. So tell me about that, because I think that was a really interesting response to that commission. It's an almost impossible commission to a degree, but it was really fascinating how that made you think in all sorts of registers about time, as we were discussing earlier on, but also about the human relationship with capital on the one hand, but also the universe in a much more broader sense. Um, no, absolutely. But it's, you know, it's not much more than I can say somehow because it was really, you know, it's just a metropolitan museum. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you can't even understand it all, but you can't even visually, you know, get it all together because it's so much. And it's like, it's so many objects of all, you know, times. There's so much time in these objects. There's so much human efforts. There's so much, you know, pain and belief and whatever. So it's, you know, it's a very, very, very big, let's say, intense spot of human energy. And so, and then you go up on this roof and you see this like funny city and this funny skyscrapers and the funny people and somehow very touching, but also like very funny because it's so ironic. Absurd in a way. Yeah, it is absurd because I mean, also like, you know, for me, I mean, I love New York, but for me, it's like a nostalgic place somehow because it's like we have seen the future in the past so it's like present and it's here but it's the past in the meantime which is kind of strange for me I mean you know but it's always like a couple of decisions it's it's formal decisions of course it's uh, you know context decisions and it's about you know the theme you're interested in and that's that's why I kind of decided to do this absurd um, planetary system somehow like you know like many possible different ways of seeing it while framing this like real absurd city. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think probably the understanding that also through my works about the DNA and things like that, that there is no difference, actually. That it is all described, it's all unknown, it's not to be understood and then there is like almost no difference between all of us, but we manage to make a difference 
which is hard to accept. And in a bad way, it make a change in my thinking that I learned that I am not right, unfortunately, to believe that through a logical thinking, things like racism, discrimination, and things like that could be avoided. That it's not about understanding and logical thinking as I wished it would be. But there are other things which are like kind of not to get out or not to be avoided yet. As you say, you've done it through your work. There was that whole show that you did, which is really all about DNA. And you mapped your own DNA sequence and so on. Tell us about that. So I was like taking myself as an object somehow, you know, I, I mean, it could be also like somebody else. I started to do the same procedure with stones I had and different objects. And then I ended up with myself. And so I was like, you know, trying to describe as much of myself as I can without trying to my biography to kind of influence that. So, um, and of course, the first you have the elements. So we are made of 24 elements, quite simple to describe, you know, it's like a little laboratory. And then, of course, you have this DNA, this mystical DNA, which, you know, we are trying to kind of get in since the 50s, but then 70s. And so, so finally, we, we are still not there, actually. It's not true that we know it, that it's like it's completely known. That's also just like a more like a PR thing to, to tell, but it's simply not true. Yeah. And then I started to, to work with a friend who is a scientist. And then I understood what that actually is. I always saw it completely different. I, I thought that each one has a different DNA and then whatever, you know, this is making us so different. It's not. It's very unromantic somehow. It's like, I mean, the DNA was like developed from like 13 white men, you know, on some point. So it's like a reference. And so we have this reference. And then we are, they are comparing like other individuals with this kind of reference. And then you have mutations and then these mutations are making ourselves. But anyways, this is just like 0.01%. It's like the difference between us, which is nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, that was for me like a big kind of learning effect. I wish I somehow for myself knew before. <laughs> somehow, <laughs> I never kind of believed that there's so much, so much of a difference between women and men and this and that, whatever. I mean, this is kind of proving that in a probably good or bad way. I'm not sure about that because it's, of course, not telling everything. Of course, you can't say, of course, there is like influence. Of course, there is society. Of course, there is where you're like raised. There are so many things. But in the end, yes, that's what I'm saying. This unity somehow, for me, it feels very, it's kind of giving hope a little bit. You know, it's not, it's not so bad, actually. But so the matrix is not too bad. It is kind of just hard to believe what we can make out of that and how we manage to create such a so strong and unforgiven society, which is judging on so many points for so stupid reasons. And as I said, actually, as I learned about this DNA, I thought that everyone who's able to think just, you know, not you don't even need to be very smart, but to understand a tiny little bit should be completely free, would need to be completely free of any ideas of, you know, like racism or any other stupidity. It should be just logically clear. It is very clear. But on the other hand, you know, we know that they are like very highly educated evil people somehow, you know, so I don't know. You know, it's kind of, it's for me hard to really express because I'm afraid I'm using the wrong kind of terms for that. But yeah, it's kind of this helpless situation between knowledge and reality somehow. Or like the power of masses, the power of, you know, manipulation, the power of, I don't know. Yeah. Which writers or poets do you return to? I mean, I've been obsessed with Sartre when I was very young. 
So it comes a little bit back to me now. But it's, you know, this typical teenage thing, probably, you know, read, reading Nietzsche and Sartre when you're like <laughs> 15 and 16 and not understanding it very much, probably to the deepest, but getting the feeling. So I'm, I'm picking it up now again after many, many years. And yeah, I mean, expect of that. I'm not reading a lot, to be honest. I mean, I don't read a lot of fiction in the, you know, bigger sense. I think it's a little bit boring for me to read novels or something like that. So I prefer indeed to read science, but not like, you know, I more read it like a narration. I'm kind of interested in some point, And then that is for me so much more exciting than reading much about poetry or novels somehow. So I'm getting, you know, kind of more touched by probably electrons jumping from one, <laughs> you know, ring to the other than about real poetry somehow. I don't know. So this is kind of my sense of uh, or like, you know, how light electrons are behaving and that they are somehow behaving, but they're not behaving. I mean, this is making me really like, you know, very kind of touched almost. So, yeah, it's more like cross reading about different things. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? To be honest, I still, and again, again, am listening to David Bowie a lot and Velvet Underground still a lot. It's very European music, probably, in the sense of what I listen to. Uh, there is one band called Lebanon Hanover, which I love. Cigarettes After Sex, also another band, which I love. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> I read that you like to listen to music when everyone else in the studio has gone home? Because you have a team, right? But when you're on your own, you blast music out. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't do that when I have people around because it's like for me, you know, to, you know, with music, it is like letting it go somehow. And letting it go is a very personal thing to do. And I don't want other people to watch me do that, even if it's not visible, of course. But, you know, I mean, the magical thing about making art is like the moment when you kind of leave control, you're out of control. But in the same moment, you are very clear in your mind. But it's like both things which are contrary somehow. And your mind is kind of going further and further in a very fast and controlled way on the other hand you need to be completely out of control of like outer control somehow so it's more like i don't know it's like a status you know something so but this is very personal for me and this is somehow music for me it's like a tool to help me to get in this somehow because of course art is not so logical you know you can't just sit down and do it it's a bit it's a bit tricky to say you know how you do it but you need somehow to get out of the real space somehow and you need to get in your mind space and you need to trust your mind space and you need to be self-confident in that and music is making you euphoric or sad or whatever and this is very helpful yeah I can imagine, especially when you're dealing with mathematical or scientific concepts and you add music into the mix, that combination of the kind of empirical and the emotional would foster a kind of really interesting creative space. Yes, I think, yeah, because you need both. I mean, you can't just calculate it, <laughs> but it depends on the person, of course. But I can't be just kind of free. I mean, I need a certain kind of 
a lead which I'm giving to myself. On the other hand, I need to let it go because otherwise I'm just, you know, like it gets boring and I just, whatever, I would like repeat it and then I would, what, I, I don't know. So yeah, it's like a, it's a very sensitive mixture which is needed to do that. <laughs> At this point, I ask about other media that influence you and I really wanted to speak specifically about architecture here because it seems to me that you use architecture really interestingly in terms of site-specific works and so on, but your work has a certain architecture about it too. Can you say something about architecture and how much it plays a factor, architects' buildings, but also architecture in terms of the space that you use? You know, it's hard, but I'm really not educated in architecture at all. I really have a lack of education, which I should fill, but I've never been really in it. But I have, I think, a very deep need of like knowing a place, a space. And I mean, it's very physical what I do somehow. I mean, I do like big objects in space. So it does something to people. It does something to the, you know, way how people approach a space. And I try to observe that very clearly, you know, how people behave, how they walk, how they decide about directions. And this is, of course, what architecture is also doing. But I'm very much using that for my own purpose, you know, for my own uh, need in my creation. But it's interesting because I'm, I'm trying to get more in this gap between architecture and art together because I'm invited a lot to do commissions and things like, you know, like for different architectural venues. But mostly it's a little bit um, frustrating because I'm invited after like architecture is kind of it's finished or it's done. And then they try to put something on top of it. And this is not very easy because both are very influential in the same way for, you know, human behavior in a public space. And that's why I try to learn about this approach a little more. In the end, I don't think it's much different because it's the same thing, what, what we do. It's like, you know, it's like you need to, to kind of learn about the use of it. Of course, I don't have like a real use, but, but still I have a, let's say, I mean, it's not a physical use, but it's a, like a mind use. So I'm also like using a space or like a, a surrounding to do something with that. So, and I have to take care, you know, how people behave and how they interact with those things. So that's why I think it's quite similar in many, many ways. It's just that, of course, I have the freedom to do whatever I want until it's not falling apart. You know, so <laughs> you know, I don't have to please too many, you know, things to be taken care of, right? I mean, still a few, of course, but to be honest, I mean, between us, I wished I would be more educated in architecture, but I'm not because I somehow have been, you know, focused on other things. But it's interesting and I'm kind of getting more and more in it. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I mean, there are rituals, which I probably don't like that much, but they're still <laughs> there. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's quite the same each day. Expect the days I can get myself free and do what I really love to do. And this is like as a pure creative part. But all the rest, I mean, I have this big studio. I'm here like each morning. I am discussing to my team members. You know, I'm going from one team member to the other until and then it's actually already 6 p.m. And then I have to head off to your time. So I can't really say, but it's different when I'm alone. I mean, I love to be here on the weekends whenever I can on the evenings, which is not so easy sometimes if you still have a private life or you try a little bit at least. But then I, yeah, I just, you know, I make myself a coffee. I uh, switch the music on and this is quite probably something like, like this. And then I you know, I, I kind of sit in front of the computer and I, originally I don't do anything, just like clicking through whatever on the net, things I think it's probably interesting. But to be honest, to first of all, kind of free my mind to stop thinking 
about daily things, about budgets, about whatever technical problems to kind of, you know, get in a different mood. So then I, yeah, I, I'm just sitting there and I'm like kind of taking myself through whatever things, research points, but not really, I probably not even read it. I'm not sure what I do there, but this, yeah, this is quite something like that probably. <laughs> <laughs> if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Oh, you're making my life really hard. One piece of art. Ay, ay, ay. I don't know. It's too many pieces of art. <laughs> I would need to live with. I can't say. No, I can't say. Because then the problem about a piece of art is that it always belongs to an artist. Or like it was created by an artist. And so I can't say it because then I would like drop a name. Because I don't know the probably the title of the piece, which I would like to know now because then it would be like a singular being without the an artist but i can't tell it because i can't say an artist's name now in such a situation okay fair enough and lastly what is art for i mean it is to create human beings it's for thinking alicia thank you very much thank you very much Alicia Quada Petricor is at the 303 Gallery in New York until the 17th of December. Her exhibition, In Relation to the Sun, to Sequences of Events Within 8,016 Hours, is at the I-8 Gallery in Reykjavik, Iceland, until the 22nd of December. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Benzel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. And a big thank you to Alicia Kvada. And thank you for listening. That's it for this series and indeed for this year. And we'll see you in 2023. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.